Today I'm speaking to the CEO of Sprott Asset Management, a global leader in precious metals and energy transition materials. Uh, welcome, Joel. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here in London. Great. Yeah. How are things? It's been great. I mean, I've been first time back in London for a number of years, and it's great to finally meet people face to face again after mm. a, a hiatus. So mm -hmm. it's great to be back on the road. Yeah. And you back in the office back in the US? Yeah. Slowly getting back. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been a little slower, I'd say, than most uh, other big cities, but yep. I think we're we're finally getting there, and I think this uh, spring, summer, we should be back in full force. Perfect. Okay, well, I want to start with the focus of today's interview. Uh, why are energy transition materials now one of the most compelling investment opportunities for investors right now? Yeah, I mean, there are, I think, two really big themes going on right now. Mm -hmm. um, a year and a half ago, when we started talking to people about this thematic, it was really what was coming out of COP26. Yeah. It was finally acknowledgement that things needed to be done, things needed to be accelerated. The U.S. returning into the Paris Climate Agreement was a really big, not just symbolic, but I think a real meaningful step to, to, to show the world that uh, there was alignment across many countries to hit net zero. Mm -hmm. So energy transition is really about decarbonization our economies, and that means the way we live, the way our businesses operate, everything from transportation, to industrial processes, to energy production. And then obviously in the last year or so, the other big wake up call we've had has been around energy security. And I, you know, talking to investors in, in Europe the last year, you guys really felt the brunt of this. Yeah. You know, in North America where I live, uh, we're very energy rich. We have lots of uh, uh, secure supplies of, yeah. of, of fossil fuels and other commodities, but you guys really felt the brunt of what happens to your power system when the price of something spikes because there's a shortage and how that you know trickles down to the average consumer the you know the your your someone running a you know a energy intense business mm. it's quite profound and i think that was a real wake up call for a lot of politicians to finally acknowledge that now they have a double challenge which is energy transition at the same time trying to figure out how, how to secure energy yeah. uh, and that has really been i think the thesis that a lot of investors are latching onto the governments around the world, whether it's in the UK, the EU, Canada, South Korea, United States, they're all putting out green taxonomies. They're all trying to essentially send investment signals to the market that they want this transition to happen. They want more electrification. Uh, they want new technologies to be invested in. And they're, so they're trying to send, send signals to crowd in private investment mm -hmm. alongside the public money that they're, they're throwing at uh, many of these initiatives. Got it. Okay. Well, I think that works perfectly as the elevator pitch for this theme. But perhaps if we can circle back, cover some of your background, introduce mm -hmm. you to the listeners. Um, before joining Sprott, you held senior positions I read at Invesco Canada and TD Asset Management as well. Um, perhaps you can just reflect on those experiences and give us an idea about how those earlier experiences formed your investment approach in your current position. Yeah, sure. That's great. I don't. I don't get to think and reflect about <laughs> the past too much, just because of my day-to-day -day job. I just think about you know today and tomorrow. Um, but you know, I am coming up to thirty years in the investment business, and um, it is a wonderful business. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a dynamic industry, and yes, it has its uh, flare-ups and 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 uh, issues from time to time, like we're kind of experiencing right now on a couple of fronts, but. It's, it's great, it's a great business. I mean, at the end of the day, you're helping people achieve their financial goals, mm -hmm. and that financial, those yeah. financial goals help to meet financial security. And if you can, I think, um, do the right thing and, and, and focus on your clients first, mm -hmm. everything kind of takes care of itself. You know, that's always been my personal philosophy. 
you take care of your clients, you do the right things, and, and the business has success. And then from a personal level, you have professional success when yeah. you operate that way. And, and that's, you know, I think what, what's, what's made me successful as a, as a professional. Yeah, okay. Well, just to get into your current role then, obviously, as CEO of Sprott Asset Management, you play an active role, at least I read on your bio, uh, in the development of new investment strategies, but also acquisitions, marketing, strategic partnerships as well. So from the huge number of projects you've been involved in mm -hmm. since you joined, I think, back in 2017, perhaps you can give us a few highlights. Yeah, so I've been the CEO at Sprott Asset Management since 2017, but I actually joined Sprott in 2010. and. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Sprott's a really unique place because we are based in Toronto um, and that's significant because it's the mine finance capital of the world. So every mining company in the world pretty much comes through Toronto basically trying to move their projects forward and look for capital to finance those projects. So we're very involved in all things related to metals and mining. Um, I would say, you know, in the last couple of years, the acquisition of, of one of the vehicles that we made, which was called Uranium Participation Corp., which turned into the Sprott Uranium Trust, uh, Physical Uranium Trust, was really the catalyst that got us going down this path of energy transition. And you know, we were talking to investors, many in, Euro in Europe, and, and, and they wanted to know about uranium. And I would say to them, well, what kind of a fund do you run? And I was surprised that many of them would say, well, I run a clean tech fund, I run a climate change fund, I run an energy transition fund. And I'm like, what is going on over here? Because we're not talking like this in North America, but, you, right. but Europe was. Yeah. And I thought that was quite intriguing. And as we talked to more and more investors uh, around the world, um, we found out there was a growing uh, acceptance that the world was moving down this path of energy transition. And it was really, you know, as I mentioned, those two catalysts that we thought were, were, were what accelerated the conversation and brought it more mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, and that really kicked off a journey for us to think about how could investors get exposure to this uh, thematic. We knew a lot of investors were investing downstream in the, in the supply chain. Yeah. So, but we also had investors say to us, you know, I miss Tesla or whatever. Like, I don't want to buy something that's trading at hundreds times multiple earnings or something. Mm. Where, where are the other opportunities that, that you see? And so we see opportunity in a lot of the commodities. And if yeah. you see opportunity in the commodities, then you have to believe there's going to be opportunities for the producers. Mm -hmm. Because if the commodity prices are going up, which they have been for lithium, copper, uranium, uh, etc., the companies that are exploring for those and trying to you know, develop the mines of tomorrow are going to be big, benefit, big beneficiaries. So that was our, our kind of focus. And the other reality is that for a very long time, the world was very focused on investing in technology stocks. Mm -hmm. They worked really well, particularly in a period of you know, free money. Mm -hmm. And that period, I think, is, is kind of behind us. That doesn't mean technology stocks aren't going to do well, but investors that I talk to are starting to ask, where else can we look? What other areas have been ignored in the market? What other areas of the market represent better value? Mm -hmm. And one of the areas that's been neglected for the greater part of 10 or 12 years has been mining. Mm -hmm. And so as the world says, hey, we want to electrify more, hey, we want to go to EVs, everyone comes back to one issue. Where are all the critical minerals? Mm -hmm. Well, they're in the ground because we haven't developed any of those resources uh, because some of the technologies are new or we've just ignored them. And so what's happening now is you've got, you know, the UK government, the EU government, the US basically almost in like an arms race mm. where they're all trying to compete against each other for my package is better than your package to incent, you know, a new gigafactory being built or, 
you know, new manufacturing being built. So you see Volkswagen saying, we're going to build a new car plant in Ontario, where I live in Canada, because the incentives, they're throwing incentives at us. And plus, Canada has a lot of these resources that we need to build the cars and to build the battery cells. The other thing that's happened is governments realizing that they cannot rely on foreign governments for supplies, critical supply chains. We unfortunately learned this the hard way with COVID when we realized that, you know, we didn't have security supply with, with countries, you know, if certain products from countries in China and whatnot. And if you look at some of these supply chains, China is a really big player. Mm. China controls most of the manufacturing of EV battery packs. Yeah. China controls a lot of uh, the vast majority of solar panel production, components for wind turbines. Uh, they produce most of the rare earths. Rare earths are, are specific elements that are needed in everything from defense applications to uh, permanent magnets that go in either electric motors or wind turbines. And so governments around the world are saying, hey, we want to do this energy transition thing, but we don't control the supply chains. So in the last 12 months, there's been a flurry of different acts and pieces of legislation that are basically throwing billions of dollars of incentives, hundreds of billions of dollars of incentives mm. at companies to either produce more of these base materials to create processing because many of these minerals come out of the ground and they have to be turned into chemicals. So that's an intermediate processing step. And then finally, they all have to be put together mm. to form an EV battery pack and obviously put the car together. So you're going to hear, th you're going to hear uh, uh, terms like reshoring, mm -hmm. friendshoring, onshoring. Yeah. This is the new vernacular of what governments are trying to do. They're trying to build this energy transition, but locally. Mm. And it's, it's going to require a huge amount of investment. And just to give you some perspective, last year, um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimated that $1.1 trillion was invested in some kind of energy transition technology. Wow. It was the first year ever that it matched the dollar invested in fossil fuels. Mm. And we think over time, that ratio is going to remain quite high. And we actually think that the amount going into energy transition is going to start to outpace the dollars going into fossil fuels. The other thing people ask me about is, well, is this like an anti-oil and gas message mm. or stance? Absolutely not. Yeah. The reality is our energy systems, our transportation networks, all of that stuff for the last 150 years, all based on fossil fuels today. Yes, we've moved to more renewables and whatnot, but this is a multi-decade transition. This isn't about stopping one or you know deeming one to be evil. This is about uh, trying to change the mix, trying to change the balance more to lower greenhouse gas emitting forms of energy or transportation so that we can help limit the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm, yeah, fascinating. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job of outlining the investment case for this scene. There's a few points I want to dig into, but before we do, perhaps we can take a step back and look at Sprott's investment philosophy and your overall approach, because I think there's some interesting points, particularly about you know, how you're differentiated versus some other thematic ETF peers as well. So firstly, I mean, you were founded by Eric Sprott in 1981, a champion of precious metals investing, of course. Um, Sprott is known for its focus on precious metals as a result and energy transition uh, investments now as well. Uh, but do you believe that that narrower focus, I suppose, is, gives you an edge versus mm -hmm. other thematic ETF providers in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, metals and mining is very technical. Yeah. Um, 
I often will do presentations for institutional investors and it's like part chemistry class, part physics class. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're really into some technical stuff in mm -hmm. terms of like how energy is produced and what minerals you need to store it and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think, um, I think it's, it's a really strong uh, advantage that we have that because we only do metals and mining, mm -hmm. it gives us a lot of insight. The other thing we do is we do everything from physical commodity funds, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, to passive strategies yep. to active strategies. So when we're designing our passive strategies, we're often using all the learnings and intelligence and subject matter expertise from the people doing you know, active work in the area, mm -hmm. as well as the, what we learned by actually buying and, 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 uh, and stockpiling uh, different commodities. Mm -hmm. So I think that ecosystem that we live in is, 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 uh, is very valuable. Mm -hmm. We often will look at some competitor ETFs and uh, have to chuckle, quite honestly, because <laughs> you'll look at some like green metals ETF and I'll look at the holdings and say, why is there a gold company with oil and gas royalties in that particular fund? Yeah. Uh, that makes no sense to us whatsoever. Right. But it's, I, I see why that happens, because you go to an index provider and you say, can you build me this thing? And nobody really peels back the cover and say, well, what does that company really do? Mm -hmm. And that's where we, you know, I think that's where we've come in with these particular ETFs. We've tried to really focus on pure play exposure, mm -hmm. and that's been a process and it's a lot of work. Um, and what we do is we basically try to identify companies that we think are involved in energy transition, but then actually peel back the cover and say, okay, how are they involved? Yeah. And what other exposures do they provide? So people might look at our ETFs and say, well, why don't you have, um, you know, why don't you have Valet in there? Or why don't you have Glencore in there? Why don't yeah. you have Rio Tinto in there? Mm -hmm. The reason is not because we're making a call on those companies or we think they're, they're not world-class companies. The reality is, is they have most of their businesses involved in things that we don't think are critical. Mm -hmm. Are they important? Sure. But iron ore is not going to be as critical as lithium for the transition. Mm -hmm. Or a company still might have legacy exposure to coal. Well, this is, you know, coal is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah. So we'll exclude those companies, even though they might be really big market cap companies. So we're trying to focus on the companies that are either have revenues and or assets tied very specifically to the critical minerals that we think are going to be the biggest beneficiaries of the transition. So that's everything from, and we like to think of it in three different stages. So mm -hmm. how do you produce energy um, in a clean way? Well, you can produce solar, you can produce wind, you can have nuclear energy that we believe uh, should be part of the sustainable approach. Yeah. Um, you can produce geothermal, um, hydroelectric. What are all the key minerals you need for that? Well, the two that really jump out at us are things like uranium and, and silver. Silver um, is a key element in solar panels. Most people have no idea, but about 10% of all the silver produced every year goes into solar panels. So we focus on, you know, what are the minerals for energy generation? Then you go to transmission. How does energy move around? Well, moves mostly on copper. Mm -hmm. Copper lines, transmission lines, yeah. copper cabling, um, copper foil. So copper, we think, is going to be a big beneficiary in the tr for transmission. And then finally, energy storage. So what does that mean? That's just another way of saying batteries. Mm -hmm. So batteries obviously come in two forms, small and large. Electric vehicles are going to be the primary driver. Mm -hmm. One in seven cars last year sold globally, new cars had some kind of electric element to it, sure. either fully electric or plug-in, which is the most we've ever seen. Yeah. Um, that's obviously being driven by China, but countries like the US, which have been kind of slow on the adoption, 
are all, all of a sudden getting ready to throw a $7,500 credit per vehicle mm. at uh, new buyers. So um, we, we look at uh, all of the minerals in those EV battery cells. What are they? Lithium is the star there. Yeah. Nickel, most people have no idea. Nickel plays a, a big role in batteries. Mm -hmm. uh, cobalt, manganese, and graphite. Uh, so we, and then you have large-scale batteries as well with different kinds of chemistries. So that's how we kind of think about this kind of energy wheel, as mm -hmm. we like to describe in terms of energy production, transmission, and then the storage. Got it. Okay. Well, perhaps we can go a further step back, I guess. I mean, I, I saw you described uh, on your website as a contrarian investor, one with a long-term mm -hmm. investment approach. So perhaps you can just sort of break down that, that second um, word or, or descriptive term long-term investment horizon was something that i saw plastered all over your website and there'll be specific reasons for that which i'm keen to hear but how do you weigh short-term market fluctuations with that mm. long-term perspective yeah it's 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 a really good question because mining in general is a volatile sector yeah. um, it is vol volatile because commodity prices can be volatile mm -hmm. Uh, which we've seen over the last year. We've seen oil, you know, go from 80 to 120 and back to 80 or, uh, you know, 60 something. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of commodities are volatile, but also the companies are also can be volatile. Why? Because many of them are in development stages, which means they're pre-cash flow or they're trying to build a new mine or they're trying to explore for a new mine. So those companies just generally are less less liquid and more volatile because of their stage of development. Sure. So if you're going to be th thinking about this thematic, you wanna think about the big picture secular growth drivers, yeah. which we think there are many of them, but you also don't wanna get whipsawed around and, and get kind of washed out because the sector might fall 20% in a month, which it can do. Yeah. So it's something you wanna think about carefully and you know almost dollar cost average in. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to stick to your conviction. I mean, one of the things about our founder, Eric Sprott, that I was just amazed at. And I know part of it was because his name was on the door, but the amount of conviction he would have in some of his trades was just unbelievable. Like even though he might look wrong for a long time, he eventually looked right. And, and when he did look right, he looked like a genius. And he would be willing, it wasn't being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. It was willing to be contrarian when popular consensus was, was different. Hardest time to do it, I suppose. Very hard, yeah. Okay, so um, you've also got, I think, a reputation for innovation, constantly bringing out new innovative products, one of which we're going to go on to discuss today. But before we do that, I was keen to understand your process for identifying new markets, new products. Mm -hmm. How do you go about validating those ideas before actually listing a fund? Yeah, well, financial services is um, is a very challenging market for, for, um, for product development because... Yeah. You, you know, you don't have any intellectual property rights. Anybody can copy your idea the minute the minute you launch it, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's very hard. And, and the reality with thousands of different ETFs around the world, the, the ground is well covered. So as a small boutique money manager, you know, our goal is to try very hard to find the unique opportunities that we think are coming yeah. or have not been met or the products that have been uh, or in the market today are not well thought through because they don't have expertise in the area or whatever. And so we're really trying to, to, to narrow our, our bets. We listen to our clients very carefully, mm -hmm. either face-to-face -face meetings. We do a lot of social listening. What does that mean? We are on Twitter all the time and LinkedIn. Yeah. We're constantly watching for what are people talking about? What are they tweeting to us? You know, and, and this is important. This has become more important, as you know, 
than ever. I mean, we, we think of investors on Twitter as a giant institutional investor. Mm -hmm. you, you have to take them seriously, even though it is the Wild West out there. Yeah, yeah. But you have to, as a collective, take them seriously because when they get their minds on something and they start to team together and share ideas, it's unbelievable how much capital they can move around in the markets. So we, we listen, we do a lot of social listening, um, and it's really just thinking about would we, would we put our own money in that? Does that make sense? Because yeah. often we do seed our funds with our own capital. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not easy to you know, find $10 million to put into a new fund to get it off the ground. So we have to, we have to think it's, it's right for our clients. We have to think it's right for our own capital and shareholders. Um, and we want to you know, stay committed to it long term. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to the mm -hmm. investment case for energy transition materials. We've covered a lot of it already, but firstly, can you just outline for us what are the natural materials that are essential for this global energy transition? We've covered a few of them, yeah. but let's, let's get the full list. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there are a lot of different minerals, and everybody defines it differently. You, you hear the term critical minerals, strategic minerals, uh, yeah. future metals, future yeah. minerals. There's all kinds of terms. Um, every country and region has a different list they actually have a an official critical minerals list so the eu will have one the u.s geological survey will have one uh, and these are the minerals that, that they deem to be important for different strategic reasons or whatever but, but going back to energy transition there there are a number that are, are critical i think the world has um, really become focused on lithium um, why because every battery chemistry contains lithium doesn't matter if you have lithium phosphate iron batteries in china or lithium, manganese, cobalt-based batteries in the UK, mm -hmm. lithium is the common element everywhere. Right. And prior to EVs, lithium was really not used for much of anything, like ceramics and some other odd uses. And all of a sudden, you know, the world needs lithium. It's concentrated in only a few parts of the world. And it's concentrated in a few parts of the world because it all comes from volcanoes. I don't know if you knew that. It all comes from volcano material that came out of volcanoes millions of years ago. Yeah. And so you need to find parts of the Earth's crust that are really old. So where, where is that? Well, in the Andes. Right. So you have the lithium triangle between Argentina, <coughs> Chile, Bolivia. But you also find um, a lot in places like Canada and, and Australia in hard rock uh, versus brines. So not everyone is blessed with endowments of lithium. So for example, in, in Europe, there's not a lot of lithium here. Um, and so everyone is racing around trying to form partnerships with you know, Canadian mining companies and Australian mining companies. And the US government is literally loaning hundreds of millions of dollars out to lithium companies to incentivize them to build new lithium mines in Nevada, mm -hmm. where there are lithium deposits. Mm -hmm. So lithium is a really big part of the story. The, the price of lithium went up exponentially the last two years so it is it has corrected in the last couple of months but it was the best performing commodity in the world because there was a shortage yeah. as people were buying evs all of a sudden it's like hey where's the lithium we don't have any um, and the reality is um, there's a timing mismatch and what i mean by that is let's say i'm volkswagen and i want to build a new uh, ev plant mm -hmm. it might take me five years to build the thing start to finish if I want to build a new lithium mine, it's eight to 15 years. Yeah. So, you know, we can build all the car companies we want, but where are the raw materials to actually build the batteries? Yeah. This is the issue. So there's a bit of a race going on right now. Uh, and it has, you know, it's also created some, some trade friction because 
the U.S. is throwing out much more attractive incentives to, to, to OEMs to build capacity in the United States. And so, you know, the European Union is scrambling around saying, okay, we'll upsize our package because we don't want everybody to go there. So lithium is, is, is a really um, a critical mineral, class one nickel. So there's a lot of nickel in the world, but um, there's two kinds of nickel. There's, there's kind of low grade nickel, essentially, that is used primarily for making stainless steel. And then there's very high purity nickel, which comes from Canada and Finland and Madagascar. Um, and it's, it's used for the battery cells, high energy density. Um, cobalt is another key element. Uh, most people think of cobalt and unfortunately think about some of the horrendous kind of working conditions amongst artisanal mining in the DRC. But there are mechanical, you know, fully industrialized mines as well that, uh, that produce cobalt. Cobalt's important because uh, if you try to eliminate it, eliminate it out of your battery pack, you basically lose a lot of thermal stability, which means the chance of your battery catching on fire goes up. So cobalt is another key. Uh, mineral in in Western uh, batteries. Um, graphite is another key element. It's one of the largest components of the car. Um, manganese is, is is another element more plentiful. So people don't think of that as being as critical. But lithium, nickel, cobalt, and, and graphite are kind of the key ones there. Sure. And copper, you know, everything. You know, copper is obviously um, a very well known, wide application, but where we produce copper today, a lot of those mines in Chile are coming to points in their lives where the ore grades are falling. So it's harder and harder to find, you know, extract it out of the earth. Um, so it takes more time. There's some, there are water challenges in some of these areas as well. So copper, we need a whole lot more of. And if you look at all these different, uh, you know, research and consulting houses, when they forecast out, you know, different scenarios of EV adoption and all these different stated pledges and whatnot from governments, you, you look at the numbers and it's staggering. Like the amount of additional copper we need from 2020 production goes up, you know, anywhere from 200 to 500%. Lithium is in the thousands of percent in terms of in, increased production. And so all of that future demand is going to basically incentivize a lot of lithium production, which is happening right now. Um, and companies around the world are finally able to raise capital because these are capital intensive industries and they take a long time to build. So if capital is coming into a sector, it's, it's thriving. When capital is, is not coming to a sector like it did for, for a lot of the, uh, the bear market we saw in many uh, commodities, it basically shrinks. And so we've, we've essentially starved a lot of these industries or the industries didn't exist because we didn't have these technologies. Um, and everybody all of a sudden wants to have all of this stuff and built, you know, built or, or processed or mined on local soil as opposed to trying to rely on another country, which may not become reliable in the future like we saw with Russia. Right. Okay, well, I'm interested to get a time scale on this then. How, how long will this pivot towards the greener economy take, I suppose? And I mean, is this something that we're going to see in the coming years, the coming decades? Investors, particularly those listening in, will be interested to understand the time horizon for an investment like this. Yeah. I mean, if you think about um, the net zero pledges, a lot of them are focused on 2050. Yeah. Um, I, like, we have no idea whether we're going to hit these or not. It's, yeah. it's pretty ambitious, right, in terms of some of these pledges. And last year, I think yeah. we kind of went backwards. Yeah. Um, 
But we think that this transition is going to take trillions of dollars mm -hmm. and is going to last decades. So we think this is a, a, a long-term theme. We do think that we're in a new commodity super cycle. It's just forming. Okay. And unlike the super cycle we saw in the 2000s, yeah. that was really built on you know, China building 30 new cities and factories and all that. So what were the big beneficiaries of that? Well, you know, it was just about everything, but you know, a lot of the basic kind of building materials and steel and, but this commodity super cycle, we think is gonna be driven in large part by the energy transition because it is so raw material intensive. And so that's why we think it's a long-term secular theme. Yes, it will be, it will be bumpy as we go, obviously. Um, but we think it's a really interesting long-term theme that's just starting to play out. Great. All right. Perfect segue then to stop talking about this ETF specifically. So it's the Sprott Energy Transition Materials ETF, ticker SETM. Um, firstly, I was keen to understand why the fund doesn't offer direct exposure to the minerals themselves as opposed to, obviously, stock exposure, which is what the current fund offers. Did you consider even a multi-asset solution, perhaps? Uh, yes, we definitely did, and we love physical commodities uh, at Sprott, so if we can put those inside of a vehicle, we're absolutely open-minded to that, and we would love to. We just don't have the vehicles today, sure. um, but we're working on them, so they may, they may appear at some point in the future. But yeah, we think it's important to have some direct exposure to, to commodities, um, and if you can't get it, unfortunately, you know, the producers and the developers is, is your next uh, best option. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, secondly then, did you think or do you think about the underlying exposure that you've got to each of the minerals in the fund itself? Are you trying to diversify across all of them at any given time or do you let, do you let that play out organically? Yeah, so we wanted to have broad diversification. I think yeah. one of the things for investors is that this is very technical, it's kind of complicated. How am I going to follow all these different markets and commodities? And so. The, this particular ETF is is kind of like your one-stop shop. You just you can get a little bit of exposure, and there's a there's there are caps, so we're we're capping each of the metals at 25%, so that we ensure that one doesn't kind of race away and it becomes kind of a de facto lithium fund. So what you'll see right now is it has about 25% exposure to lithium companies, 25% to copper companies. Those are always going to be, I think, the the larger weights. Um, then you've got smaller weights that are focused on nickel, rare earths. Um, um, you know, it's almost impossible to get pure play exposure to cobalt because most of it is a byproduct of other minerals. And, and so it's hard to get exposure to cobalt. There's some, some companies in, with um, graphite in there as well. So it's, it's, you're getting a bit of exposure to, to all the funds. This, this particular fund does not have any uranium mining exposure in it. We specifically for the European market opted to exclude it. And if somebody is interested in that, we obviously have a fund a la carte that they can, they can choose to, to, to purchase as well. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, we've already touched on this, but let's dig into the security selection process. I mean, how do you go about identifying the pool of companies that are kind of worthy of inclusion in this fund? Is there a particular criteria that they need to meet? Yeah, sure. So we started the process by going through 90,000 publicly traded securities. Wow. And from that, we came up with about 790 that we thought had something to do with energy transition materials. Sure. So um, we're only focusing on upstream companies. So upstream meaning upstream the start of primary production. So companies basically mining these minerals or extracting these minerals, uh, 
Uh, we're not focused on the mid, you know, midstream and downstream. So downstream is you know, a Tesla or a battery maker or whatever. So we're focused on the upstream only. What we did is we actually went through company by company and peeked inside of its financial statements and balance sheets and said, how exactly is it exposed to this thematic? What percentage of its production is from copper, for example, or how much of it is from coal? Because with a lot of these diversified mining companies, you'll have um, all kinds of different metals. So for example, if a company um, produced, you know, or 50% of its revenues were from iron ore, you know, iron ore will play some minor role in the energy transition, but not a critical role uh, because the iron ore market is so big. So we'll exclude that company out of the, out of the mix. Or if a company has a lot of coal exposure, well, we don't want the coal companies in either. So we'll exclude those companies. So some of the really big diversified mining companies are not in our index. We're trying to focus on more of the pure play companies. Uh, and every six months, what we'll do is we'll go through that entire process again because there's new IPOs coming all the time. There's spin outs. Why? Because people realize the battery metals are more uh, attractively valued if they can spin those businesses out versus having them within diversified mining companies, yeah. just like they're spinning coal companies out. Um, so some companies are, are going to spin out copper nickel, their copper nickel, nickel uh, operations, such as Valet, we think. Um, so as those companies become available in the index, they will come in. And obviously we have some market cap and, and, and um, you know, average daily trading volume, liquidity, basic kind of ETF constraints, just so we, we make sure that the ETF is tradable and, and the APs or um, the authorized participants, as we call them in North America, can make markets uh, tight uh, in the ETF. And it sounds like quite a labor-intensive sort of research process. Is this sort of analysts pouring over balance sheets? Uh, you know, is there any direct contact with the companies themselves to understand their business model? How, how does that actually work? Yeah, so we have a team uh, of analysts that's brought that did the work. And, and believe it or not, you have to kind of go through even Chinese financial statements. So luckily, we've got staff members that speak, uh, that speak Mandarin and helped us with, with, that, with those companies. Uh, but it is, a lot, it is a lot of work. And, and again... We're focused on a pure play, very thoughtful product. So we're willing to do the work twice a year. And it's, it's, it's very dynamic. It's constantly evolving. Like companies are coming public all the time. And we want to make sure we're aware of them and tracking them so that we can potentially include them in the index. So rebalance twice a year? Twice a year, yeah. Was there thought to kind of rebalance more often to ensure that the exposure is kind of even more timely or, or, or was twice a year? Yeah, we just figured that getting a snapshot of the company twice a year was enough and we didn't want to have too much kind of trading within the, the fund in terms yeah. of rebalancing. Most of our funds we find twice a year is enough. So you trying to capture, I guess, an all exhaustive list of the funds that meet that criteria that you set out a moment ago, rather than trying to identify the top performing assets within the space. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, this is not a very deep universe of companies yeah. yet. Um, it can become mm -hmm. a lot deeper as more and more companies come to market and, and move their projects along. But right now, it's it's really about gaining the most pure play exposure yeah. to these companies that are available to us today. Um, and, you know, there should be a lot more, um, but it, it will take time for them to, to come to market. Absolutely. Uh, I also noticed the fund's largest regional weighting was to Canada, I think at 28.1% when I read this morning. So. So perhaps you can let us know kind of why that is. Obviously, you talked about a lot of Canadian companies being involved in the mining space, but 
Um, talk to us about the other regional weightings as well. Yeah, so Canada and Australia, I think, are very well known in terms of being tier one mining jurisdictions. Yeah. We have we have very high standards in our mining laws. Mm -hmm. We have very high sustainability and responsible ma uh, mining um, requirements. And so I think I think it's not just companies developing assets in Canada. It's also management teams based in Canada that are exploring for lithium deposits in our Argentina, for example. Mm -hmm. But the mining, you know, the mining background, I think. Um, is, is, is well known in, in both those jurisdictions. You know, the U.S. obviously is another, is another high, uh, highly regarded mining jurisdiction, but yeah. the Canadian and Australians, uh, you know, they've got that reputation and grit for turning over rocks around the world and, and, and trying to find these deposits. So um, I would think over time, you're gonna see more U.S. listed companies. Okay. Um, definitely, there's been a number of mining companies listed in the U.K. as well. Yeah. Um, so there's always been a rich, a rich tradition of mining in the UK and, and you know, less so in, on, in continental Europe. Got it. Okay, well, let's talk about performance then. I think the fund is down around 19% since inception, um, obviously only recently listed. But perhaps you can describe the macro factors that are influencing performance most at the moment, and then we can talk about the tailwinds mm. that are likely to bolster performance in the future. Yeah, I mean, the last, I would say, six, seven weeks in the markets have been really brutal. Yeah. Um, you know, we started the, the new year on a really positive note. Everyone thought the Fed was pausing here and risk capital started coming back to the markets. Mm -hmm. And in the last seven weeks, we've had, we've had you know, kind of double hit with uh, the Fed remaining pretty hawkish and then, you know, cracks forming across a few banks, which unfortunately, you know, if you're old enough and you went through 2008 and 2009, you had a few flashbacks mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks about... Yeah banks failing and contagion and, and, and uh, being bailed bailed out and all that. So yeah. uh, it's clearly hit everything, you yeah. know? I mean, there is just a, a lack of risk appetite right now in the markets until people get a better sense of, is this, uh, is this a, seri a more serious issue that is gonna spread through the financial system that mm -hmm. could create more of a, a ripple effect and, and more of a, a hard landing in, our, in the economies? Or is this contained a, a couple of uh, banks that weren't, you know, the risk management wasn't very done very well. So yeah. it's, it's hard to say, but investors right now, I, I'd say, are sitting on the sidelines. There are trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines. I mean, yeah. just in U.S. money market funds alone, I think there's five trillion parked there right now. Um, so money is sitting on the side. People are in a risk off kind of mode right now. And I think it's irrespective of how good the fundamentals are with some of these industries and companies, people are just kind of taking a wait and see approach. Yeah, yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. But what about those macro factors that are likely to bolster performance in the future? Perhaps you can describe the perfect macro environment for a fund like this. Yeah, so I think you have um, really, you have two situations. One, you need all the noise from central bank tightening and inflation yeah. and banking stability to kind of cool down. And then you just need the commodity prices to do what they need to do, which is get to different incentive points or stay at incentive levels mm -hmm that make these deposits economically viable, that make their financing viable so people want to invest. Mining is, as I said, it's pretty capital intensive. You know, companies often need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to build a mine that, you know, will produce nickel for the next 15 or 20 years or whatever the time frame is. So there's a big upfront cost. That's obviously can be impacted by risk appetite and interest rates. 
and then there's a big payback, you know, over the life of mine. And right now, you know, it's a challenging environment in terms of finding big amounts of capital that want to be exposed. And this is why I come back to the Inflation Reduction Act and, and even some of the recent legislation in the UK, where it's basically the government saying, look, we're going to put our money in too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll de-risk this, we'll de-risk these projects for you, which means we're going to support your return, your future expected returns, yeah. because we're gonna loan this company the money or we're gonna give them all these tax incentives or whatever whatever carrots they're throwing at people mm -hmm. these days. And I think that's important because mining is a risky sector. Um, and if governments realize, acknowledge you know, this issue and are willing to, to help subsidize it, it has a better chance of success. Got it. Okay, well, I want to finish the interview by looking ahead and understanding kind of what's next for Sprott Asset Management. So what other themes are interesting Sprott at the moment? Are we likely to see any new funds in the short to medium term? Or talk to us potentially about some trends that most interest you. Yeah, so I think the decarbonization mm -hmm. energy transition theme is not going away. Sure. So we're constantly thinking about new technologies. Um, what other technologies do we think the world can commercialize? Mm -hmm and deploy at scale to help with the transition. Yeah. So it's everything from small modular nuclear reactors to micro reactors to hydrogen economy to uh, carbon capture technologies. I mean, we're, we're looking at all of this stuff because we think there's a role for many of these applications. Um, in, the, in the case of small modular reactors, I think that's a huge opportunity because many Western governments are going to embrace this. For example, Rolls-Royce in the UK is one of the companies in the world that is developing a small modular reactor and is asking the UK government for you know, guidance and, and support to develop this technology because they want to deploy it. Um, so there's a bit of a race going on right now with a number of companies. Um, I think there are, there are huge opportunities for, for uh, SMRs um, to replace coal plants as they come to end of life. Yeah. And I think that's the big idea over the next 10 to 20 years there. Um, but we are constantly looking at what other, what other kind of metals may, 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 may uh, become of more interest, you know, especially as scientists and researchers are constantly trying to bring costs down, changing chemistries of batteries, all those kinds of things. So we're looking at all these trends. So it's uh, an evolving. But I think what we've just brought to market on, on both sides of the pond is is pretty meaningful and, and so we're gonna we're gonna support these funds and help them get to, to scale. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fascinating insight to end on. Just leads me to say thank you very much for joining us on the show, John. Thank it's you for having me. It's great.